Okay, please don't crash. Please don't crash. Hey everyone, Eric Izwa here with the Summons from Gallifrey podcast. This is a regular podcast that focuses on talking about classic Doctor Who. Alright, and here we are now in episode 17. I want to say 17. I'll probably correct myself as soon as I check the schedule, but in this episode we are going to be covering the Sylvester McCoy story, Time and the Ronnie. Alright. We're now at season 24 of the show, set to begin airing in September of 1987. What a great year that was, folks. While John Nathan Turner had to inform Colin Baker of his contract termination in order to get season 24 greenlit, he himself was talking to Michael Grade to leave the program for other projects within the BBC. JNT took a holiday immediately after season 23 concluded in December of 1986 with the expectation that upon his return in January, he could finally move to something else. However, Michael Grade informed JNT that he would need to stay with the Doctor Who program for one more year. Now, production for season 24 was soon approaching with everything still up in the air. Uh-oh. First, the show would keep the same 14-episode format, but was moved to a new time slot on Monday evenings from Saturday. Instead of three four-part episode stories and one two-part story, the show would move to a story structure of two four-part stories and two three-part adventures that it would keep for the remainder of the Sylvester McCoy era. Secondly, since Eric Sayward was gone, a new script editor was needed pronto. Andrew Cartmel, who was at the time working in computer IT, was really interested to break into something different and had submitted several scripts to the Doctor Who office previously. The production office were aware of several of his submissions and decided to put Cartmel forward to JNT for consideration to fill the script editor position. While that was happening, JNT decided that a new intro with computer effects was needed for season 24 to bring in the new Doctor. Kef McCullough created the updated theme along with the 3D logo effect that would be used until the end of season 26. And last but certainly not least, they also needed a new doctor. After spending a lot of time working as a daredevil and comedy theater performer, Sylvester McCoy heard through the grapevine about the available role and contacted JNT. JNT checked out one of his shows and felt that he'd definitely be a great fit for the role. Colin Baker was contacted about coming in to film some sequences for the regeneration story, but he responded with a counteroffer that would see him return for another full season. And the, ba the BBC never got back to him. <laughs> I don't think they liked that counterproposal. In later interviews, he did express regret about this decision, apologizing to the fans for not providing the opportunity for a real proper transition. But back to the complete lack of scripts for the season thus far. JNT was in a real pinch and relied again on the writing team of Pip and Jane Baker to deliver a script for the first story while he worked on finding the full-time script editor. Without knowing 
who the doctor was going to be or having a script editor, it must have been tough trying to come up with a coherent script meant to kick things off. The writing duo went back to one of their ideas from a Colin Baker adventure and reworked it for use for Sylvester McCoy. Kef McCullough, as I mentioned, did the main theme as well as the incidental music for Time in the Ronnie. Kate O'Mara returned to reprise her role as the Ronnie. The other scripts that were finally lined up for the rest of the season was Paradise Towers by Stephen Wyatt, Delta and the Bannerman by Malcolm Cole, and finally Dragonfire by Ian Briggs, which would see Mel leaving the Doctor's side and the Doctor picking up a new companion named Ace, played by Sophie Aldred. On a higher level note, Time in the Ronnie is the last story done by a quote-unquote traditional Doctor Who writer-contributor. Going forwards in Sylvester McCoy's stories, every contributor is now part of a new batch brought in by Andrew Cartmel, and it really shows in a lot of the stories. Well, in every story. So with that behind-the-scenes stuff out of the way, let's get into the recap. Alright, in episode one. We see some laser blasts or something hitting the TARDIS while it's flying through time and space. It's very difficult to quote-unquote get, but the idea here is that the Ronnie is pulling the Doctor's TARDIS towards her with the help of a gun that we never ever see again in the entire series. The Doctor and Mel are lying unconscious in the console room. We don't even see the Doctor's face, just uh, a Sixth Doctor outfit and some curly, a, a curly hair wig. Cut to the planet of Lycurtia. We see a bird-looking man standing at the top of a rocky hill. His name is Icona, but we don't find this out until much later. He looks up and sees the TARDIS flying across the sky with a kind of rainbow-looking jet stream. It does look really weird this, these first few minutes. The TARDIS lands and we hear the main doors opening. The Rani walks in holding that giant gun. She orders something to leave the girl and take the man. This creature hobbles over to the doctor and turns him over so that we see his face. It's basically Sylvester McCoy wearing a blonde curly colored wig with some special effects on his face to make it look, to give it that swirly effect as if he's regenerating, which he is. Seconds later, the wig vanishes and we just see Sylvester McCoy proper. Cut to the new intro sequence. Once that's done, we see a laboratory built into the side of a rock, rocky cliff face. We see a female version of the Birdman carefully putting Einstein into a small compartment. Yes, Einstein. Baeus, it's kind of a heavyweight looking guy, is overlooking things. He's a male Birdman who's the chief of the local, the local tribe, the local people. The Rani walks over, urging the female, known as Sarn, to hurry things up. She seals the chamber and puts Einstein as a label on it. Sarn and Bias share a look like they're supposed to know who it is. It's kind of weird. It, it doesn't look right, but whatever. Um, there's a bit of back and forth between Ronnie and Bias. She's basically threatening Bayas. Sorry, his name's Bayas, not Bias. She's basically threatening Bayas and his people, known as the Lycurtians, that if they don't keep obeying her, then they'll pay for it. She's her whole personality. The Ronnie's whole personality is that she's detached from everything emotionally. 
because she's a scientist, an evil scientist. She's only interested in Baeus and his people for her experiments, nothing else. They have no other significance. She tells Baeus that all he needs to understand is that all of these specimens are genuses. And in fact, he doesn't even need to understand all that, so I'm not sure why she would tell that to him, but whatever. She needs to repair some of her lab equipment, which is where the doctor comes into the equation. The Rani walks into another room and the doctor is sprawled out on his back on a table. She pokes him briefly to make sure that his two hearts are beating okay. She walks over to a staircase leading upwards to another door and is climbing the stairs when the doctor starts babbling as if he's talking to Mel. The Rani closes the door and comes over to the doctor. He springs off the table and starts babbling before turning around to face the Rani. He recognizes her instantly, and the two of them have quite a bit of back and forth. The Rani is also a Time Lord, exiled from Gallifrey for her gruesome experiments. The doctor figures out that the reason she's on this planet has something to do with an asteroid orbiting the planet composed entirely of strange matter. She doesn't deny it, but she doesn't tell him anything of her plan. She threatens the doctor to help her or she'll hurt Mel. An empty threat because she doesn't have her, of course, but the doctor doesn't know that. While she's talking, she reaches into a drawer and pulls out the same comically large sized gun that she had before. The doctor tries to run, but he loses balance and falls over. Baeus and Sarn run into the room to try and help the doctor up, but the Rani waves them away. She grabs Sarn's arm and tells her that she'll deal with her later. Sarn runs away. The doctor gets up and threatens to smash some of the equipment. The Rani shouts for Irak. And then the same creature from the opening segment lumbers in, and for a few seconds we see things through its eyes. It has 360 degree vision, sorta. It's a little bit hard to explain. He's got, it's a creature that has eyeballs around every, every side of its head. It pulls out a gun and shoots the doctor with some kind of electro fishing net, which stuns him. Meanwhile, outside, the dude who is on the hill, Icona, watching the TARDIS land, sneaks in and finds Mel, still unconscious, sneaks into the TARDIS. He picks her up and swings her over his shoulder, walking away. Back in the lab, Irek talks to the Rani via her wrist computer and tells her that Sarn has escaped the complex. The Rani walks over to a monitor and watches Sarn trying to run away outside. Meanwhile, Mel comes around and doesn't like being carried over someone's shoulder. She hits Icona, Icona's back a few times and then she escapes, heading towards the laboratory. Sarn is running the other way and the two almost run into each other. They stop briefly just in front of each other. Sarn panics at seeing Mel and she changes her direction. She hits a tripwire thing that's hidden in the rocks and she's trapped in this bubble looking thing that envelops her. It spins her around in the air while floats upwards, ricocheting off the side of a hill before it hits another rock face and explodes. Mel notices Icona, who is carrying her, who is watching the whole thing. She walks over to him, but he pushes her away and heads towards some 
comically looking bones now in the rocks. There's some skeleton bones kind of scattered in the rocks, and I, I mean, whatever. Durrani saw the whole thing on her monitor and switches it off, ordering Urak to reset the trap. She orders Baeus to help her with the doctor. He rolls up the doctor's sleeve and the Rani injects something into his arm to force amnesia. Outside, Mel and Ikana go back and forth. He accuses her of being in league with the Rani while she de denies any involvement with anyone. His plan is to take her as a hostage to exchange for Baeus, and then he ties up Mel. Back in the lab, the doctor slowly comes back to consciousness. He's still wearing Colin Baker's outfit, which is a nice touch. The Rani is dressed up to vaguely look like Mel, including a red-haired wig. She tells him that they're on his laboratory on Lacertia. There's some back and forth with not Mel, explaining to the doctor that he was working on a computer panel when it exploded causing them both to pass out and for him to regenerate. There's a few moments where he almost recognizes her as someone else, but not Mel is constantly distracting him. She guides him back to the machine that exploded, telling him that he's the only one who can repair it with his knowledge of thermodynamics. Outside, Icona is dragging Mel, who's trying to explain that she has no idea what's going on. During their bickering back and forth, the dude accidentally hits another tripwire. Mel yanks hard on the rope to pull him backwards before he can be trapped inside the bubble. They watch as the same bubble thing spins up and explodes. Mel makes one last plea that she's not the enemy that he thinks she is. The dude realizes she's telling the truth and unties her. They have to leave the area fast because the creature will soon be there to check on the trap. The creatures are called Tetraps. As they're walking away, we see that Urak is already watching them from some other rock position. Back in the lab, the doctor is fiddling with some computer components, making hints to not Mel to wipe his brow. She gives him the biggest eye roll and dabs his forehead. He gets distracted again and wanders around questioning what the purpose of the equipment really is. She's able, not Mel, is able to get him refocused on fixing the circuit boards again. Back outside, Mel and the dude are making their way to a small pipe to hopefully get a bit of rest. The dude picks up a hidden gun of his own from the back of the tunnel and explains that all of his people have become docile and won't lift a finger against the Rani, even when she kills them. They only listen to their leader, Baeus, that the Rani is holding in her laboratory. Back in the laboratory, the doctor is again trying to find out what's going on. He's pointing at the door at the top of the stairs and asking not Mel what's behind it. She claims not to know. There's a little bit more back and forth, and the doctor sits down refusing to do anything else until his memory fully returns. He doesn't remember what he has and hasn't told Mel, not Mel. Meanwhile, Baeus is feeding the Tetraps. He enters this subterranean cage and pulls a chain and a trough starts filling, maybe with blood? Kinda looks like blood. Some kind of protein, rich meal at any rate, sludge. The tetraps live like giant bats. They're all mostly hanging upside down. They smell the food and come running while Baeus leaves the area locking the cage behind him. 
Notmel dumps a vial of some blue elixir into a glass of water and swirls it around to make it go clear again. She hands the cup for the, for the doctor for him to drink. During the next bit of dialogue, it's basically that thing where every time the doctor is about to take a sip, he comes up with something else to say, or uh, the brawny Notmel interrupts him. So basically, he just never takes a drink. Eventually, he tells her that he needs a radiation wave meter. Notmel suggests that there's one in the TARDIS, and the doctor's eyes light up at the idea of going there. He walks out while Notmel stays behind. She opens her wrist communicator to tell Iraq to move Mel from the TARDIS. He tells her that she's already gone, so Notmel orders him to find her. During their walk outside, the doctor stops at a pile of bones in the rocks, basically Sarn's, Sarn's bones. I didn't mention it until now, but every time Not Mel speaks, she's trying to match Mel's higher pitched voice. There's some excellent acting here by the Ronnie, Kate O'Mara. Another kind of tidbit throughout these conversations between Not Mel and the Doctor is that she's basically projecting her own beliefs onto the Doctor, making him think that they belong to him. So, the more she's revealing, it's making it sound like it's coming from the Doctor and not from her. Sylvester McCoy has a pretty good line here. He says, the more I know me, the less I like me. Pretty good one. He's still in Colin Baker's outfit, by the way. The two of them get to the TARDIS. Part of Sylvester's shtick at the moment is screwing up well-known English expressions and phrases. For example, he claims he's as fit as a trumpet. And there's a few others like that throughout this story. Anyways, we finally get the wardrobe scene. A bit of comedy here while Sylvester tries on different outfits, with Not Mel groaning in exasperation. He comes out in Tom Baker's outfit, John Pertwee's, and even Peter Davidson's. Finally, he comes out wearing Patrick Troughton's giant fur coat, then opens it up to reveal his famous outfit. Not Mel likes it a lot, but likely just to get him moving. The doctor starts staring at Not Mel, almost seeing her as the Ronnie when she suddenly slaps him. She tells him they need to grab the radiation wave meter, which is likely in his tool room. He promises her that absence makes the nose grow longer. As he leaves, Notmel calls him a cretin under her breath. It's really well done, this, this whole scene. It's well acted between the two of them. Meanwhile, Mel decides to leave the tunnel thing to look for the doctor, with Icona reluctantly following her. As they're making their way down a canyon, Iraq is following them. Not Mel is in the TARDIS control room talking to Iraq on the wrist communicator, then she opens the, view, the TARDIS view screen to watch Mel running. The doctor comes into the room remembering the name the Rani, while he hears, he hears Iraq referring to Not Mel as the Rani, and that's exactly when the doctor came in, so it triggers his memory. Not Mel points to Mel on the screen and the doctor supposes that that's her, and that she's completely evil. Not Mel tells him that she needs to be destroyed, which the doctor isn't too crazy about either. Meanwhile, Iraq is following Mel, who realizes she's being followed and starts to run. She doesn't watch her step and hits a tripwire. She's caught in the bubble thing. While it's spinning around in the air, Mel is screaming her head off as the bubble floats towards the nearest rocky cliff face. And that's where we leave episode one. 
Episode 2. Mel just can't stop shrieking. She is a screamer. In pretty much every Doctor Who story, she really screams her lungs out. Anyway, the bubble that she's in finds its way onto a small pond, so luckily it doesn't detonate. Icona runs down the hill towards her and calms her down while trying to defuse the trap. It's his first time doing this, so he tells her to stop screaming. There's a sudden burst of light when he touches the controls, and then we're back in the laboratory. They kind of did an edit at the same time. Anyway, the machine that the doctor is trying to repair has briefly sparked up. Again, he gets himself distracted thinking about the Ronnie and what he's trying to actually achieve in this lab. Not Mel keeps trying to steer him back towards the machine for him to repair it. Back to Icona, he successfully disarms the trap and the bubble disappears. Mel and Icona run off with Irak watching him from a distance. In the lab, Not Mel is again using the computer display to track the strange matter asteroid while the doctor is busy. She shuts it down and asks the doctor if he's going to be much longer. He says, I'm afraid so. More hasta, less vista. She just rolls her eyes. Every time the doctor makes one of these um, expression twists, she really rolls her eyes. Mel and Icona are making their way through the rocks. Mel takes a breather while Icona heads up to a secret cache of weapons. I thought he already had a gun. Um, anyway. Irak jumps down behind Mel, and we finally get a big long look at an actual Tetrap. It's not too bad of a monster. It's an interesting idea with, eye, like I said, eyes all around its head. Basically like a man-bat. Or Batman. I'm Irak. Batman. Anyway, no, no. It doesn't look like Batman, but it's, it is definitely like a bat-looking creature with eyes around all around its entire head. Um, I can't remember if there's one right on top of its head. Mel starts screaming again, and Icona fires some kind of glitter gun at Urak, which stuns him temporarily. Mel heads up the rocky path to get to Icona. Meanwhile, the Doctor and not Mel are looking at a broken circuit board. More questions and distractions from the Doctor, while not Mel is pretty convinced that she has a replacement circuit board somewhere. The Doctor is slowly realizing that not Mel is in fact not Mel. He's throwing her a few softballs as a test and she's failing, which gives him pause. Like, basically questions that only him and the real Mel would know. Back outside the lab, Icona and Mel reach an overlook. If the doctor is alive, that's probably where he'll be, as they're looking at the lab. Mel makes an observation that something must be going really badly for them to resort to kidnapping the doctor for his help. The doctor has rigged up a primitive stethoscope thing to try and listen through the door at the top of the stairs. Not Mel joins him, trying to distract him about replacing the circuit board, while the doctor is trying to tell her that he hears something behind the door. She tells him that she'll fetch a replacement circuit board from the, the Lucretians, while the doctor finishes with the machine. He looks a little confused as earlier on Not Mel described the Lucretians as primitive. Not Mel just looks at him while hitting a button on the door, and all the lab, all the doors to the lab close down. 
Outside the lab, Baeus's wife Faroon makes her way towards Icona and Mel. Icona leaves Mel and conf confronts Faroon. She ta chastises him for disobeying Baeus. He's trying to save their whole tribe from destruction from the Rani by acquiescing to all of her demands. Mel steps into the conversation to mention the girl she saw escaping the lab and tripping the trap that ultimately killed her. Icona confirms to Faroon that it was Sarn, Faroon and Rebeus' daughter. Faroon looks sadly at the skeleton bones which are still nearby, and with tears in her eyes she heads towards the lab to tell Baeus. Mel follows behind her, still convinced that the lab is the most logical place to find the doctor. As Mel is heading towards the lab, we see not Mel coming out of the lab heading in the other direction. As they get nearer to the lab, they watch Faroon enter the main door, which is guarded by a tetrap. Icona agrees to distract him to give Mel the chance to slip inside. Icona takes off and runs through the clearing in front of the lab in full view of the tetrap, who takes the bait and starts giving chase. Mel slips inside. Tetrap loses Icona, but then it, stop, it spots not Mel and shoots his net gun at her, which surrounds her and takes her down. Of course, being the Ronnie. Mel approaches one of the lab doors, which triggers it open, I guess. She's creeping through the lab while the doctor is back to fixing the machine. He finally turns around and they meet each other face to face, and each of them demand that the other come clean. Mel is, of course, looking for the sixth doctor, and the doctor is convinced that Mel is really the Rani. They go back and forth trying to prove that the other is not who they say they are. The doctor tries pulling Mel's hair, convinces the wig, and causes Mel to scream. He demands to see her wrists. If she is Mel, then she would only have one pulse. Likewise, she wants to see his wrists, because then she, he, he would have two, the two pulses. Mel finally starts to see that this is the doctor while he explains that he's gone through a regeneration and is going, and is going through post-regeneration amnesia. He extends one arm for Mel to feel his double pulse while she extends one of her arms for him to feel that it's a single pulse. Yay, they finally realize who each other is. Meanwhile, the Tetrap has freed the Rani in his net and she enters her own TARDIS, still intent on fetching that one circuit board that the doctor needs. Back at the lab, the Doctor and Mel are looking at the footage of the Strange Matter asteroids circling the planet. The Doctor explains that the Strange Matter is incredibly dense. A lump of it the size of the table near them weighs more than the entire planet Earth. They still can't figure out what the Rani wants with it. If the Strange Matter explodes, it would release an equivalent amount of gamma rays as a supernova, which would wipe out the planet Lucertia and everything else in the vicinity. While they're trying to brainstorm the plan of the Rani, Baeus and Faroon are on the other side of the door listening to what the Doctor is saying. And the doc meanwhile, while the Doctor is describing everything to Mel, he's trying to hack the, the door controls. So Baeus yells out the code to open the door, 953, which the Doctor just laughs. It just happens to be the age of himself and the Rani. Anyways, he punches in the code and the door opens. The Doctor and Mel step through to meet Baeus and Faroon. Back in the Ronnie's TARDIS, she has finished cutting a new circuit board to the dimensions that the Doctor needs and heads out, heading back towards the lab. 
Mel and the Doctor are going through the collection of geniuses that the Rani has captured through time and are storing in their pods. Mel notices that there's one pod reserved for the Doctor himself. The Rani returns to the lab's main doors. The Doctor and Mel re realize that as a Time Lord, the Doctor can contribute his knowledge of time travel. Varun spots the Rani coming, so Baeus, Varun, and Mel exit the room via the other door. The Doctor rushes back to the machine to pretend he's been studying it the whole time. The Rani comes into the room and spots that the table computer was on. She's kind of suspicious that something happened while she was gone. She heads to the Doctor and gives him the new circuit board piece. Varun slips out of the lab, taking Mel with her. Rani and the Doctor both fit the new circuit board into the machine while she asks him what he was doing on the computer. He comes up with a fib. The Doctor then tries to get a bit more information out of the Rani before turning the machine on. But the Rani ignores him and flicks a switch on the table computer, powering everything on. The machine powers up and the Rani takes off her Melwig to reveal herself. The Doctor throws his scarf around her and pushes her down while he runs out of the lab, heading past Baeus. It's pretty pathetic. I mean, it's all, all they can do to kind of give him an excuse to run away, but it just, it looks kind of terrible. The Rani gets up and takes off after him, of course. The Doctor is hiding within the Tetrap cage behind a rock. The Rani comes inside to take a look, but doesn't spot anything. She doesn't see anything and leaves, locking the cage behind her. The doctor steps out, seeing if there's another way out, when he's suddenly surrounded by some tetraps who are all smacking their lips. That's where we get the cliffhanger of episode 2. Episode 3 The doctor comes up with a few puns about eyes. We may not see eye to eye, or try and see it my way. It's actually kind of funny. The the thing is, though, is that they when they give the doctor these puns to say, they he says them very quickly. So if you if you're not paying attention, they just wish wish by. I I wish they would have given the lines the dialogue a bit more time to kind of sink in. At any rate, Baeus pulls the chain to unleash that food sludge for the tetraps, which distracts them long enough for the doctor to escape the cage with Baeus. From the rocks overlooking the lab, Mel and Faroon watch as the Rani steps out looking for the Doctor, giving Mel some hope that the Doctor hasn't yet been captured. Mel sends Faroon away to avoid being punished if they're caught together. Meanwhile, the Doctor is trying to figure out a way out of the lab complex. Irak is in the lab area looking for the Rani, and Baya stops the Doctor from heading out the same way the Rani did. Irak finds Baeus, who tells him that the Rani has left the building. Irak leaves, but not before insulting Baeus and his entire race. Needlessly insulting, I should say. After he's gone, the Doctor gets out of his own pod. The Doctor is still puzzled by the presence of all the geniuses. And he's even more puzzled by the attitude of Baeus, who's helping the Rani despite the murder of his daughter and others. Baeus explains the reason for his collaboration is in the center of leisure of his people. They're near the computer table and the doctor explains the danger of the strange matter asteroid exploding. 
doctor grabs a transformer, I, I have no idea, basically a small piece of the machine that he repaired, which now powers down the lab. Baeus demands the doctor give him the gizmo, and they struggle. The doctor pushes down Baeus and runs out, while the Rani is entering the lab shouting for Baeus. She comes into the room and figures out that the, that the doctor has been there and has grabbed something from the machine. Meanwhile, outside the lab, Icona watches from some nearby rocks as the doctor runs out. Mel is by herself somewhere nearby and screams as she's surrounded by tetraps. Irak literally slips her this giant tongue to her neck, which paralyzes her. They intend on bringing her back to the Rani. Icona shouts at the doctor to stop moving, who then looks down to see the trap he's just about to spring. The doctor slowly backs away when a tetrap suddenly jumps up near the doctor. Icona uses his glitter gun, which confuses the tetrap long enough for the doctor to give it a push into the trap. It triggers the bubble thing, and then it, it explodes, killing the tetrap inside. Yurak brings Mel past the Rani, who then tells Faroon to give the message to the doctor. In return for the gizmo he stole, she'll hand over Mel. After she leaves, Faroon and Baeus almost have a fight. She's having a hard time con continuing to listen to the Rani without wanting to fight back. Baeus is totally convinced that once the Rani's experiments are done, she'll leave the planet and they can return to their normal lives. But Faroon points out that the daughter is dead. Baeus sends her away to the center of leisure so that she can deliver the message to the doctor. At the center of leisure, Icona can't understand why Baeus would send the doctor there. Picture a community center type of place with a giant disco ball in the middle of the room. The Lacertians are lounging around the place and Icona looks at them with disgust. Basically how weak and soft his whole tribe has become. Icona points out that the only thing new in the center is the giant disco ball thing hanging in the middle of the room. The doctor and Icona try to talk to some Lacertians to ask them about the disco ball, but they all ignore them. Back in the lab, the Rani and Irak are questioning Baeus about some of the glitter gun remnants which was used to kill that tetrap. Baeus admits that they're Lacertian in origin, but none of his followers would disobey his orders to help the Rani. On the computer table, we see uh, the disco ball thing on a monitor. The Rani hits a button and the disco ball stops spinning. Baeus protests, but the Rani reminds him of the penalties of any disobedience. She hits another button and some small panels open up in the disco ball and little energy firefly looking things come out from the ball and start to attack people. It's kind of weird because before they even come out, they do a voiceover of a girl yelling, look out, they kill. Anyways, um, a few Lacertians fall over dead from being hit by this, these firefly looking things. There's a mass panic as all of them are trying to run out of the center. Icona's own brother is killed by one of them. While he's mourning over him, Faroon shows up with her message for the doctor. Back in the lab, Mel is still paralyzed and now hanging upside down in the, in the tetrap cage. 
We see the exchange standoff and Iraqi clearing now. Iraq is guarding Mel on one side while the Doctor and Icona are across the way. The Doctor gives the gizmo piece to Icona who walks to the middle between them and drops it on a rock. Well, places it on a rock, doesn't really drop it. Mel starts walking towards the Doctor. Irek goes forward and picks up the gizmo. The Doctor is waiting for Mel with open arms and she suddenly vanishes as she touches the Doctor. She was a hologram this whole time. The Doctor can't believe that he was so easily tricked. Back in the lab, Irek grabs the real Mel still hanging upside down and brings her into the lab. The Ronnie wants Baez to ramp up the brain activity of each of the geniuses, providing Mel as his assistant. And then, and then they wake her up. Icona and the doctor are heading back towards the lab. Icona thinks it's a foolish venture, but the doctor convinces him that a holographic Mel only creates more of an assurance that that's where he'll end up. Back in the lab, the Ronnie plugs the gizmo back into the machine and it switches it on. The lab powers up again and the Ronnie checks things out on the computer table monitor. She's getting upset that the increased brain activity will still cause her to miss the solstice for the strange matter. Irak suggests that she plug her brilliant mind into a pod while Irak manages the controls. It's not a terrible idea, but the Ronnie waves it off and heads out of the lab ordering Irak to follow her. She orders Bayes to prepare the doctor's pod boasting that he's already presenting himself as a sacrificial lamb. Her and Mel exchange a few words, but it's eh. Baeus holds Mel back, warning her yet again that the Ronnie just has to push a single button to exterminate all the Lucursians. The Doctor and Icona reach the front of the lab and hide behind more rocks. I forgot to mention that on the top of the lab is a rocket pointed up towards space which nobody's figured out the purpose of yet. The doctor theorizes that it has something to do with strange matter. But, I mean, it's as good a guess as any. Icona suggests that it has to do with the quickly upcoming solstice. Icona once again draws off the guarding tetrap, leaving opportunity for the doctor to sneak in. But as he does so, Irak and another tetrap step out of behind hiding and they grab the doctor, paralyzing him with his tongue. As Mel and Baeus are arguing about the doctor's pod, Irak brings the paralyzed doctor and plops him into the pod. Irak orders Baeus to connect the doctor to the rest of the geniuses. Then he enters the lab to report success to the Rani. Mel is still refusing to help Baeus connect the doctor up, so he goes off to double check the levels. Irani and Irak head back into the lab and finally up the stairs to the door at the top. Mel sneaks into the lab and follows them. She comes up to the room at the top and discovers a literal giant brain hooked up to wires. It's talking over a loudspeaker. Irani notices Mel and grabs her while the brain is discussing options to solve the problem of needing an energy release equivalent to a supernova. Irani drags a struggling Mel back outside the room and orders Baez to complete the connection and switch the power on to doc onto the doctor's pod. Mel tries to warn Baez, but Irak covers her mouth. Why not just paralyze her again? Do the tongue thing. I don't know. Baez switches on the doctor's pod, 
the Ronnie runs back inside to the brain. The brain now reports that it is learning more about space-time travel knowledge thanks to the addition of the doctor's mind. The doctor starts shaking in his pod as his mental energy is getting absorbed or processed by the brain collective. And I mean really shaking, like, I mean it looks like he's being electrocuted almost. That's the cliffhanger in episode 3. Okay. Episode 4. Burak lets go of a still screeching Mel to join the Ronnie. The Ronnie checks on the computer table while Urak warns her that the solstice is very quickly approaching. Outside, Ikona has once again avoided the Tetrap guard that was chasing him. He climbs down the rocks trying to figure out his next move. Urak tells the Ronnie that the doctor must have had help from a Lakertian rebel. She doesn't want to kill them all just yet, so she grabs a box and gives it to Urak for him to deal with the Lakertians. Irak leaves the lab and grabs reinforcements from the Tetrap cage. A bunch of them drop down from their hanging spots and they follow Irak. They're all heading towards the leisure center and Ikona decides to follow them from a distance. The Ronnie heads up to the brain to hear a bunch of voices from each genius discussing things with each other. The doctor is involving himself but just contributing gibberish, more of his twisted expressions. There's one called Every Dogma Has Its Day, which is a good one. Ronnie gets upset and vows to kill him and storms out of the room heading to the doctor's pod to disconnect him. Mel gives her an I told you so as the Ronnie disconnects the doctor from the collective. She's about to order Urak through her wrist communicator when Mel opens the pod door behind the Ronnie. The doctor jumps out and the two of them shove the Ronnie into the doctor's pod closing the door from the outside. While the Ronnie is banging on the pod door, the Doctor and Mel rush back into the brain room. There's a connected ramp which leads right to the rocket pointed upwards. Again, the Doctor repeats that it's a fixed trajectory, meaning that there's a very small window where the rocket must be fired, but they still don't know why. In the Leisure Center, the Tetraps have all arrived with the suitcase thing. Urak orders all of the Lakertians to wear the collars that are in the suitcase around their ankles. If they don't comply, he will release killer insects. A Lakertian takes the suitcase and starts distributing the collars. Varun tries to argue as they've complied with everything so far. But then Urak gives her a demonstration of the collar. He points at a random Lakertian and hits a button on his wrist. The collar explodes, killing the Lakertian and turning in her into a skeleton, while Urak just laughs. Icona is watching the whole thing from a hiding place. Finally, Baeus walks by the Ronnie's pod and lets, out, lets her out once she repeats her threat to his people. Back in the leisure center, keep wanting to call it a leisure hive, but that's another Doctor Who story, Urak and the others leave. Icona comes out of hiding and tells Faroon that he'll contact the doctor. Back in the brain room, the doctor and Mel have just finished watching footage that the Ronnie is captured of a supernova. The doctor explains that the only known detonator of strange matter is other strange, strange matter itself. The doctor explains that the only known detonator of strange matter is strange matter itself. Mel suggests that since he said that strange matter is so incredibly heavy, 
could the Rani be trying to come up with a lightweight substitute? It's a possibility, but there's a piece of the puzzle that they're still missing. The reason for the supernova. The Rani appears in the room as the doctor comes up with a possible answer. The Rani needs helium-2, which is produced during a supernova. So the Rani steps in to complete the explanation of her plan. After the supernova, the release of helium-2 will also create a shell around the planet Lucertia of chronons, which are tiny time particles. The doctor realizes that the net result will be to turn the entire planet into a time manipulator. The cerebral mass provided by the giant brain and the geniuses combined with the chronons will allow the Rani to manipulate time and events around the cosmos. While they're talking, Urak returns to put back the suitcase thing. He overhears that all life on the planet will be vaporized while the Rani is safely watching events from her TARDIS. The giant brain interrupts them all by starting to communicate a working formula. While it's making a note of the equation, the doctor corrects it before realizing what he's done. The brain has a eureka moment and to the joy of the Rani, it comes up with a formula that she's looking for, element called Loihargil. The doctor and Mel escape the brain room and close the door behind them. They come down into the lab and distract Urak long enough to use his own fishing net gun thing against him knocking him unconscious. They run out of the lab and into Icona, telling him that they need the help of their people. They all head back to the leisure center at a fast walk. I don't know. They understand the seriousness of the situation, but yeah, they just walk. Uh, anyways, back in the lab, Baeus finds Irak and removes the netting thing, which wakes it up. Irak gets up and reopens the door to the brain room to join the Rani. Loy Hargill is already being produced and automatically being put into the rocket thanks to the conveyor belt that's hooked up between the brain and the rocket. In the leisure hive, the doctor, well, it's center, sorry, the doctor, Mel, and Icona take a look at Faroon's ankle bracelet. Yada, 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 they use a wire to create a circuit while cutting the bracelet off Faroon's ankle. He orders Mel and Icona to remove the rest of the ankle bracelets and to put them all together in his umbrella. Varun still warns him about the insects and the doctor just smiles. He's got a plan. Back in the lab, as the Loy Hargill is being loaded into the rocket, Durrani orders Irak to stay behind and stand guard in case the doctor tries to interfere. She starts a countdown for the rocket then heads to her TARDIS. Doctor, Faroon, Mel, and Icona return to the lab. The doctor opens all the genius pods, hands Mel the TARDIS key, and tells her to bring them all back to the TARDIS. Icona gives the doctor his umbrella back, which still has all of those um, ankle bracelets in. The doctor, Faroon, and Baeus run up to the brain room. They start taking the, the collars carefully out of the doctor's umbrella, and they place them all around the giant brain. The brain is still counting down, now at 75. The doctor, Mel, and Faroon leave to confront the Rani while Baeus finishes all the ankle collars. They all run out of the lab as the brain with Baeus counts down from 10 seconds. The brain stops at 4 seconds. The Rani steps away from her own TARDIS when her wrist clock starts beeping, pausing at 4. 
The doctor appears from behind a rock, telling her that it's over. The Lakertians are with them, and they're preparing to attack. Um, she can't believe how dumb the doctor is, and hits another button on her wrist. The collars all explode, killing Baeus and allowing the rocket countdown to reach zero. The rocket ignites and takes off. The Rani gets into retardus and dematerializes. The doctor is upset that the Rani still got away. And meanwhile in space, we see that the rocket is heading towards the strange matter asteroid. The doctor runs back to the TARDIS where Mel and the other Lakertians are waiting around. The doctor states that the delay in liftoff will mean that the rocket will miss the asteroid. They have no idea what he's talking about, but the doctor crosses his fingers behind his back. Up in space, the rocket zooms harmlessly past the asteroid. Inside the TARDIS, all the geniuses are watching the asteroid on the giant monitor. The doctor comes in and leads them all into the interior, interior of the TARDIS, promising to take them all home, back where they came from. He walks back outside to say his goodbyes to the Lakertians, remembering the sacrifice that Baeus has made. Mel says her own goodbyes to Icona. Icona's only regret that after all the suffering she's caused, the Rani has escaped to freedom in her TARDIS. The doctor gives a innocent look, quote unquote innocent look. And we, f we cut to looking inside the Ronnie's TARDIS. She's handcuffed and hanging up in the ceiling. All the tetraps are there, hanging upside down. Irak is on the controls, boasting that when they reach their homeworld, the Ronnie will show them how to make enough plasma for their entire race. He starts laughing evilly. It's kind of, it, it's unclear, I think to me anyways, it's unclear, but maybe they're implying that the plasma will come from killing her or that she'll make it for them forever. I, I don't know. It's I think I think it's implying that they'll kill her. Back at the TARDIS, the doctor pulls out a giant bottle filled with blue liquid, promising it to be an antidote for the insects in the globe. Icona pours it out to the gasps of, gasps of everyone. Varun tells them that Icona believes that they have to get back to meeting their own challenges if they are to survive. The doctor comes up with another expression twist. Time and tide melts the snowman. Waits for no man, corrects Mel. She admits it will take her time to like this new doctor. His last line is, I'll grow on you, Mel. I'll grow on you. They close the TARDIS door and end credits come up. Okay, as before, let's go through the numbers of each episode. Episode 1, 5.1 million. Not bad. Episode 2, 4.2 million. Oof. Episode 3, 4.3 million. And episode 4, 4.9 million. To be honest, that's fair considering this is... Considering this opening story. I've got to admit that it's pretty boring and most of the time I was really struggling to care about anything. The segments where the doctor is trying to repair the Ronnie's equipment are very tedious and seem to take forever. It feels like it's almost like one and a half episodes of him just doing that. Uh, given the background behind the start of season 24, I guess it's not entirely the fault of Pip and Jane Baker, but compared to their other stories that they wrote during the Colin Bacon years, Baker, Colin Baker years, I don't know if I enjoy their style of Doctor Who. I, I just have to admit. 
Or there's a possibility that something is just getting lost in the translation. I don't know. I mean, it, you know, they, they took a, I mean, it's written like a Colin Baker story with some minor details changed for McCoy. But, you know, given the background that I went through in the beginning, they really didn't have any anything else to go on. McCoy doesn't have much to start with, and we definitely don't get any sense of what his version of the Doctor will be known for. The idea of him purposely screwing up famous English expressions is a neat one, but I think they missed the opportunity here by just having the dialogue go by so fast. There's not enough time for any of those lines to really breathe. Combined with the fact that we're on a completely alien world with an alien people who have no idea what the Doctor is even talking about. Like even the Ronnie, the Ronnie raises her eyebrows at just about every single one of the Doctor's um, expression twists, but she shouldn't, she herself, she shouldn't have any kind of context for most of those expressions. Instead of just confusion with the Lycurtians, why not just have made this like a remote human settlement? They could have come up with some kind of planet that's kind of far away in the future, but not too far. I don't know. I could buy that the Doctor would have no problem collecting info like that with all the years that he's been on Earth, but it's unlikely that the Rani would have had any idea what he's talking about. Maybe a couple of them. Whatever. Unfortunately, McCoy just doesn't find his groove until season 26, but then it's a fantastic groove. Back to this story. While the story feels just as grey and rocky as the terrain, the incidental music has been picking up with the contribution to the story done by Kef McCulloch. Without going too far down a tangent, McCoy's era of incidental music was the first time I could buy anything on CD. I had picked up the soundtrack from composer Mike Ayers for season 26's Ghost Light and The Curse of Fenric, which were both just outstanding. Given the tight 14 episode format of the series, I would have definitely tried to cut this down into a stronger three-part story, opening up another episode for something else this season. There was just a lot of repetition and weak sections which could have been and should have been chopped. I do have to admit that this was a bit of a poor choice for an opening story, and again, I can only base my ratings, or rating, not ratings, I can only base my rating on what actually made it to the screen. So I give this one two and a half tetraps out of five. Join me in the next episode of this podcast, where we'll take a look at Sylvester McCoy's last story in season 26, which also happens to be the last story of what's considered quote-unquote classic Doctor Who. Survival as the show will then go on a 19-year hiatus. As always, please leave a rating and review for this show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps the algorithm spread the show for other people to find. Have a good day, everyone. Peace. Peace.